The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus said, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. The Gospel of the Lord. Marriage is what brings us together today. I couldn't resist. Some of you obviously have never seen the movie. I confess I'm not a big fan of it. I know it's sort of a modern classic, but I tend to go for the old classics, being an old man, but what are you going to do in any event? So pretty ambitious thing tonight. Maybe we won't get through it, but You may have seen that the talk tonight is advertised as marriage. What are the rules? Because I think a lot of people are unclear, at least even until they start getting ready for marriage or maybe when they're invited to some kind of funky wedding. Like, what is the story? What are the rules? Can you get married at the beach? Can you marry your first cousin? Can you have two brides? Can you have like a bridesmaid, like a maid of honor and a best maid or what you know what I mean like people are doing all kinds of funky like what are the rules for marriage like what what, is it, what can Catholics do what they can't do what's what's kosher I mean what's Catholic I mean right or, it's funny that's you know we use the expression that's not kosher right because uh, uh, you know strong uh, Jewish and Yiddish influence in uh, United States culture in French in France if something's not kosher say c'est pas catholique it's not catholique if it's, so it's not Catholic right it's not Catholic, so but uh, I think there's a lot of questions and a lot of doubts and people wonder, you know, what, what's the whole deal with marriage? So you're going to get like a mini canon law course in marriage tonight, right? We're talking about the rules, the laws, considering, you know, revolving around marriage. What makes for a valid and true marriage? You know, what's necessary for a proper celebration of a marriage according to the mind of the church? But I thought before I do that, I really should at least briefly review a basic fundamental theology of marriage, basic understanding of marriage. So it's kind of like... Let's do a whole course on the theology of marriage and a whole course on marriage law in like 30 minutes, right? So fasten your seatbelts, all right? So marriage, what is marriage, right? What's marriage? Well, it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan from the actual beginning, right? It's part of natural law. The most natural thing in the world, as we've seen from the very beginning, as we see in the book of Genesis, is that a man and a woman meet, they fall in love, they bet the farm, and they have a family and live happily ever after, right? That's the most natural, normal thing in the world. That's the natural thing. And because marriage is a natural institution, you know, it's a natural institution, it has natural ends or a natural purpose to it. What are the two fundamental purposes of marriage? Well, they're called the unitive and the procreative. That is, the unitive purpose of marriage, the whole purpose of marriage is the mutual good and mutual support in love of the spouses. And then the other good of marriage is, or the other, the other uh, purpose or end of, or, or, or end of marriage is the procreative. That is the procreation and education of children, the procreation and education of a family. So the unitive and the procreative, that is the mutual support and love of the couple and the procreation and bringing up of a family. That's the whole purpose of marriage. That's what marriage is for, right? 
And to support those two ends, those two purposes of marriage, there are three goods, natural goods, that one chooses when one gets married. They're going to be able to support and make those two ends happen, of the unitive and the procreative end. And those three goods of marriage, of course, are indissolubility. Marriage is for life, right? You can't have a really unified couple, and you can't have a good family unless it's a lifetime commitment. Indissolubility, fidelity, that is, an, or exclusivity, it's an exclusive relationship between the husband and wife. It's not shared on the same level, the same degree with other people. And fruitfulness, obviously, has to be open to life, right? So when a couple joins together in marriage, they're choosing the unitive end, to, you know, to be bound together in one for their good, and they're choosing to have children and raise a family. And to support those, that marriage has to be forever faithful and fruitful. That is permanence exclusivity, and fruitfulness. This is the natural part of God's plan. As I said, this is written in the very makeup of the human person. As we see from the beginning, man and woman are made for each other. And they're equal in rights and dignity, but different. And yet they're complementary in their difference and their distinction. They're made for each other, made to join together and form a family, right? And this is not just a matter of natural law. It's also a matter of divine revelation. We see in the Old Covenant It speaks beautifully even of the relationship of Israel and God being a nuptial relationship, right? Like a marriage relationship. Sometimes a rocky marriage relationship, right? And then, of course, in the New Covenant, Jesus takes this natural institution, this most natural of things, and raises it to the dignity of a sacrament, bestowing a special grace upon it, right? In other words, giving those who are married a special grace, a special gift of God's love and power and strength to enable them more faithfully and more, more beautifully to live those ends and those goods of marriage, right? We see this in Jesus' teaching. We see his first miracle, of course, celebrated in the context of a marriage at Cana where he blesses this couple with his presence. We see he teaches the indissolubility of marriage, that it's for life, the fidelity of marriage, the beauty of children, the total self-gift. St. Paul echoes this, especially in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, where he speaks so beautifully of the marriage gift, the total gift of wife to her husband, and the total gift of husband to his wife, mirroring Christ as he gives himself up for his church. And of course, from the beginning, the church has always spoken of marriage, that sacrament, as a covenant, that is a holy relationship and bond. Just as there is the old and the new covenants of God with his chosen people, so marriage itself is described as a covenant, a holy bond. In fact, uh, the, the effects, the grace of the sacrament of marriage, you know, every sacrament has its own particular grace, its own particular gift that it bestows. The particular grace of the sacrament of marriage is effectively and most importantly the bond, the spiritual bond that exists between two baptized people that makes them one spiritually in God, sharing in that grace, right, that covenant, that holy relationship. Of course, the, uh, the grace of the sacrament of marriage also is perfecting the natural love of the couple and strengthening their unity, enabling them to live those goods of permanence, exclusivity, and fruitfulness. And of course, one of the effects also is this family which is built up and strengthened through the gift of God's grace. This was a handy dandy five minute summary of what we believe about the beauty of marriage. This beautiful natural institution raised by God, elevated to the dignity of a sacrament upon which he bestows its own special grace. That's great. Well, how does it happen concretely? How does marriage take place? How is it celebrated in the church? Again, I'd like to review with you the church's laws, the church's rules for marriage, because 
You know, as the church always says, the old saying is, keep the rule and the rule will keep you. There are reasons for the church's laws and the reasons for the church's rules. Uh, I happen to have a degree in canon law, and uh, I was taught from the beginning that the whole purpose the church has her own body of laws, canon law, church law, is to foster justice and peace in the body of Christ, right? justice and charity, right? The whole purpose of church laws or rules are not just rules for rules' sake, but to help guide us in providing justice and charity among other members and within the church and those also without, but especially within the church. So church law is all about fostering justice and love and charity, right? As a matter of fact, the very last phrase of the whole code of canon law, of the whole church's book of laws is salus animarum suprema lex. The, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. That's the conclusion of the church's code of canon. In other words, everything in that book is for the purpose of the salvation of souls, for justice and charity, ultimately for love of God and love of neighbor. And so there's a whole section, of course, uh, that the code is divided into different books, and there's a whole book on the sanctifying office of the church. That is the celebration of the sacraments and the sacred liturgy, and a whole section, of course, on marriage laws. Why? Because the church is always trying to protect and foster the beauty of the sacraments in general and marriage as we see in particular, right? Church wants to make sure that the, the rules are clear so that marriage is properly and beautifully and well lived. So those ends are achieved and those goods are lived that support those ends. So actually the, uh, the section of, the, of church law on marriage begins with this line, which is really a summary of the church's theology on marriage. The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life, and which is ordered by its nature to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring, has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament between the baptized. I guess I just explained that, right? So yeah, that's a good handy dandy one phrase summary of what marriage is all about. And this is incarnated in the church's law. And the church law makes clear that marriage is governed by divine law. There are certain unchangeable, God-given rules about marriage that the church herself is powerless to change, and we'll talk about those. Uh, marriage is also governed by canon law, inasmuch as God has entrusted the sacrament to the church. It is up to the church to determine how sacraments are properly celebrated and lived, right? For example, the church has determined in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church that when the Eucharist is celebrated, leavened bread is used. If you've ever been to an Eastern Rite liturgy, Eastern Rite Mass, you realize that they receive always communion under both kinds, uh, always with leavened bread, whereas the church has determined, according to church law, in the Latin or Western Rite, we use unleavened bread for the Eucharist, right? It wouldn't have to be one or the other, but that's the ancient tradition, and that's incarnated in the church's laws, right? So marriage is governed by divine law, by canon law, which is also a reflection of divine law, but the church... You know, inasmuch as the sacraments have been entrusted to the church, it's up to the church to develop the best ways and rules for celebrating those sacraments. And marriage is also governed oftentimes by civil law. Many times, canon law, church law, will defer to civil law. So, for example, canon law has a, a minimum age for the celebration of marriage, but it also defers to civil law. So the minimum age for celebrating marriage, according to church law, is 16 for man and 14 for a woman. Now, that might strike you as pretty odd, right? Well, in some indigenous cultures, that is a normal age for marrying, right? Now, in our society, according to church law, the church defers to civil law. And so 
The church you know, defers to the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia, for example, for marriages to be celebrated in Virginia. In any event, marriage is governed by divine law, by canon law, and by civil law, each according to its own competence and field. Now, the church law also recommends that uh, while it's not strictly required, baptism, of course, is the gateway to all the sacraments, so baptism is required for a sacramental marriage. Confirmation, first confession, and first communion are strongly recommended but not strictly required by law. But normally if someone comes to us for marriage preparation and they haven't been confirmed, then we also try to prepare them also to receive the sacrament of confirmation. Obviously what's going to help continue to strengthen their married life throughout their marriage is their ability to count on the grace and the power of the anointing of confirmation, but also the frequent confession and Eucharist, which keeps that marriage grace alive. The church makes very clear that what makes a marriage and what makes for the sacrament of marriage is the consent. Consent makes the marriage, right? That's why we always talk about consent as the proper canonical or church term for what we popularly refer to as the vows, right? It's the exchange of vows that makes the marriage. It's that exchange of consent. I consent to, I give myself to you body and soul for life, and the other person, the other party says, I also consent to giving myself completely to you, body and soul for life. So consent makes the marriage. Why does consent make the marriage? Again, because it's this partnership of the whole of life where each person, each party, the, the husband and the wife, consent to give themselves completely to the other in this context of marriage. Consent also makes the marriage because unlike all the other sacraments, the ministers of the sacrament of marriage, of course, are the spouses. The priest or the deacon just assist, according to church law, assist and bless the union. But ultimately, the ministers that make the sacrament happen are the husband and wife when they exchange consent. <coughs> As you know, every sacrament has its matter and its form, the stuff that makes up the sacrament, and the form, the words that make it happen. So for example, for baptism, the matter of the sacrament of baptism is water, and the form is Joseph, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is the stuff? What is the matter of the sacrament of marriage? The couple, right? The two that become one. And what are the words? What is the form of the sacrament? The consent that is exchanged. I give myself to you. I give myself to you. So consent makes the marriage. But for that consent to be proper, it has to have three things. That is, the parties have to have three things, knowledge, will, and capacity, or knowledge, capacity, and will. I'm going to talk about each of these briefly in turn. So in order to have consent that's properly given, each party has to have basic knowledge of what they're consenting to, right? So church law says, the contracting parties must at least not be ignorant that marriage is a permanent partnership between a man and a woman ordered to the procreation of offspring by means of some sexual cooperation. This ignorance is not presumed after puberty. So in other words, the church presumes that once you've reached the age of puberty, you have a basic understanding of the basic knowledge of what marriage involves. And so for that consent to be legitimately offered by each party, they have to have a basic fundamental knowledge of what they're getting into, of what they're choosing, what they're consenting to. That makes sense, right? So they have to have, for the consent to make the marriage, it has to have basic knowledge. You have to have the capacity 
to give that consent. What does that mean? Capacity means the mental, moral capacity, that is, the sufficient use of reason. A discretion of judgment concerning the matrimonial rights and duties. That is the psychic ability and maturity to assume the essential obligations of marriage. Someone who has a mental illness, right, or an incapacity mentally that does not enable them to assume the obligations of marriage cannot give a true and valid consent to marriage. So for example, Down syndrome people, human persons made in the image and likeness of God, but because of their simplicity, because of their capacity or their incapacity, are incapable of consenting to marriage fully and freely. So knowledge, capacity, and will. That is, we have to have a free will to make a full consent. The church says, the internal consent of the mind is presumed to conform to the words and signs used in celebrating the marriage. What are the words and signs? Someone says, look, I freely come here before God and the church to give myself completely to you. I freely come here before the God and the church to give myself to you. It's presumed that that will that is being manifested is really what's happening inside the mind. But that will has to be free for that consent to be valid. As we'll see, one of the things that invalidates a marriage is conditioning the will by force or by fear, for example. We'll get to that in a minute. So, consent makes the marriage. Consenting to, giving oneself to the other for life. And that requires a fundamental knowledge, a basic capacity of assuming the obligations of marriage, and a free will to make that consent absolutely freely. Church then says, those not prohibited by law can contract marriage. Marriage unlike some of the sacraments, is almost, there's almost a right in church law to marriage, right? If you basically meet the conditions and you're not prohibited by law, you may contract marriage in the church. Priesthood, for example, is different. No one has a right to the priesthood, right? One can say one thinks one has a vocation to the priesthood, but ultimately God through the church discerns, right? How do you know ultimately you have a vocation to the priesthood? When the bishop calls you to the cathedral and he lays his hands on you and makes you a priest, then you know you've got a vocation to the priesthood, right? But until then, no one can stand up and say, yep, I got it right. You know, you need, to, you need to make me a priest, church. Doesn't work that way. Marriage is different. Anyone who's not prohibited by law can contract marriage, has, in a sense, the right to be married in the church and receive that sacrament. So what, is the, what are the laws that would prohibit one from contracting marriage in the church? Well, there's some general norms. First of all, to to track marriage validly in church, you have to be free from any impediments. And we'll see there are two types of impediments to getting married in the church. There are dearment impediments, that is, you cannot get married if you have this impediment. And then there are impediments that can be dispensed from. To get married in the church, another general norm is that there must be nothing that stands in the way of the valid celebration of marriage. And finally, faithful are obliged to reveal impediments, right? So your friend is getting married, you know, Johnny is getting married to Susie on Saturday, but you know, unbeknownst to the priest and everybody else, that Johnny secretly married Mary over in Barbados 10 years ago. You are obliged in law to reveal that impediment so an invalid marriage doesn't take place. Okay? So those are the general norms. Those not prohibited by law can contract marriage. What would prohibit one by church law from contracting marriage? What would make, say, the knowledge, the capacity, or the will such that one is not faithfully contracting a marriage? Well, first of all, we have 
impediments of divine law. As we said, divine law governs the institution, the sacrament of marriage, right? These are things, obviously, that the church herself cannot even can dispense with, and they make sense when you see what they are, right? By virtue of God's own law, this would, this would impede someone from being married. This would, so one impediment, uh, a divine impediment, would be consanguinity in the direct line or in the second degree of the collateral line. What does that mean? Consanguinity in the direct line means you cannot marry your parents or your grandparents or your children or your grandchildren, right? Or you can't marry your aunts and your uncles. Duh, right? But that's, that church considers that sort of like divine law. You can't do that, right? That's, that's not in the natural order of things as God created us. Perpetual impotence also uh, in, invalidates a marriage. One, one cannot validly contract marriage with perpetual impotence. That is the inability to engage in sexual relations. That is not the same thing as sterility, right? Sterility does not invalidate a marriage. It's not impediment to marriage, whereas uh, impotence is, because as we'll see, what makes for a valid marriage is consent, which makes the marriage, which is then that ratification, which is then consummated through the marital act, right? If you cannot consummate the marital act because you have perpetual incurable impotence, then uh, that's an impediment to marriage. A prior marriage bond is an impediment to marriage. If you are already married, you cannot contract another marriage, right? That's an impediment to marriage. Affinity in the direct line is also an impediment to marriage. So you cannot, well, you have a certain relationship of affinity with another person, even, even though you're not a blood relative, that, that's an impediment to marriage. You cannot marry your brother's widow, right? Right, you can't, um, all right and other, other relationships like that. Adoption also uh, is an impediment to marriage, right? You can't marry your adoptive parents or your adoptive children or even your adoptive brother or sister, right? That's just kind of odd, right? Error concerning the person invalidates a marriage. If Susie thought she was marrying Johnny, but the guy who showed up was really Johnny's identical twin, Joey, then that's an invalid marriage, right? Because she thought she was marrying one person, but it was really a different person. So error involving the person invalidates the marriage. A condition about the future makes for an invalid marriage. In other words, marriage is betting the farm with no conditions, right? A prenuptial agreement invalidates a marriage. The priest doesn't know. You guys get to the, the couple gets together and sign an agreement. Uh, if you don't make a million dollars by next by five years, I'm divorcing you. I'm going to find a real rich guy, right? Or vice versa, right? We don't have like five kids in three years or whatever. That's impossible, right? But if we don't have, you know, any condition, any marriage that's based on a condition, any prenuptial, prenuptial agreement invalidates a marriage because it's saying, I will remain married to you only as long as or only if that makes for not for a marriage that is meant for life, right? That's one of the essential goods of marriage that you choose in getting married again is permanence, right? And finally, an impediment uh, of marriage, a dearment impediment, is force or grave fear, right? A shotgun wedding is not valid. Now, you guys even know what a shotgun wedding is, right? So, like, it turns out that the girl is pregnant, they're not married, and so the father of the, of the girl says, you go marry my daughter or else, right? And so they marry. That is not a valid wedding, marriage, right? Because, what again, for that exchange of consent to be valid, it has to be, the will has to be free, Right? Dude is not freely consenting to this marriage with absolute freedom if the shotgun is pointing at his head, right? Invalid marriage, an impediment to marriage. Now, what are some merely ecclesiastical impediments which can be dispensed by the church? 
So these are impediments to marriage, but there are, given the right conditions, the church can allow uh, these people to marry under certain circumstances. Well, holy orders and religious vows are impediments to marriage, right? If you're a priest or you're a nun, you can't get married unless under extraordinary circumstances the church provides for dispensation. In this case, that dispensation is reserved to the Holy Father himself. Crime is an impediment to marriage. Can ultimately be dispensed if the proper conditions. What would crime be? Well, like you kill your, you kill a woman's husband so you can marry her, right? That's pretty bad, right? But there's nothing objectively that says that that marrying her then would be an invalid marriage. The, but the church says that that's an impediment, and you would need a, you would need a special permission in that case, right? There, who knows what all kinds of crazy. In human life and experience and history, there's all kinds of crazy circumstances, right? Age is an impediment to marriage. If you're a man who's younger than 16 or a woman who's younger than 14, you cannot get married in the church, no matter where you live. Disparity of cult is an impediment to marriage. For a baptized Catholic Christian to marry an unbaptized person, you cannot do so without the dispensation of the bishop. Now that's ordinarily, generally granted. The Catholic party, uh, and, and the church says, for a just and reasonable cause, you may marry someone who's not baptized, right? For a just and reasonable cause. And it requires the Catholic party to make the sincere promise to bring up the offspring in the Catholic church, and the non-Catholic party must be informed. Okay, you marry someone who's unbaptized, and the same actually goes for a baptized non-Catholic. So if, you're, if, so if a Catholic were to marry someone who's not baptized, or who's a non-Catholic Christian, they need the dispensation of the permission of the bishop. They need to promise that they will raise the children Catholic. And the other party needs to understand that those children will be raised Catholic and in that, sense, in that sense consent to and agree to it, right? Church takes seriously this question of, you know, marrying people that are not Catholic because if you're not on the same page regarding what is most fundamental and important to you, your religion, your faith, that's going to create problems in the relationship and problems in the education and the raising of the children, right? So you need the bishop's permission to marry someone who's not Catholic. And of course, a Catholic marrying someone who's unbaptized is not a sacramental marriage. If it's done with the blessing of the church, it's a valid marriage, but not strictly sacramental. A sacramental marriage takes place only between two baptized persons, because they share that bond of grace. Abduction is an impediment to marriage, right? This guy kidnaps a girl, you know, can't marry her in the church without a dispensation, right? Because there's this whole Stockholm Syndrome, right? You fall in love with your captor or whatever, but it's all, you know, it's under, it's under coercive circumstances, right? But that doesn't absolutely invalidate a marriage unless, I mean, there would have to be a dispensation for that. And finally, uh, marriage must follow something the church calls canonical form. That is, it must be celebrated in a particular form or way. And canonical form has three fundamental points. First, marriage must be contracted before a priest or a deacon who assists. It must be contracted before two witnesses, and it must be contracted in a parish church where either party has domicile, or in another church where the pastor gives permission and the pastor of the bride or groom give permission. So it has to be in front of a priest or a deacon with two witnesses in a sacred space in a parish church. Outside of a parish church, you need the permission of the bishop, right? Whether it's a chapel, or in the case of Catholic marrying a non-Catholic, sometimes some neutral place is allowed. Say, for example, a, another church, or in the case of a Catholic and an unbaptized person, some sort of public venue. But 
that requires the bishop's permission. Two Catholics getting married has to be in a church for a canonical form for it to be valid. And you know, people spend $50,000 and all kinds of rigmarole and craziness throwing these huge lavish weddings. All you need is a priest and two witnesses, folks, and you're good to go. As a matter of fact, the witnesses don't even need to be a girl and a guy. They don't even need to be Catholic. You just have to have two living persons there that are like witnessing the fact that this is actually happening and taking place. So it's not like some secret thing, okay? Uh, that's about, hey, that's pretty good. I got two minutes left and I'm just about done with my outline here. So who are the ministers of the sacrament of marriage? I already explained that, the spouses, right? They're the ones that exchange consent, makes the marriage. So what is the matter? The couple themselves are the stuff of the sacrament that become one. And what makes them one? That exchange of consent, those words that are spoken. I do, I do, right? And of course, ultimately, as I mentioned briefly, that marriage must be consummated. It, we call it ratification and consummation, or consent and consummation. Consent is what makes the marriage, but ultimately, that marriage should be consummated, because again, one of the ends of marriage is the, the procreative end of marriage. A ratified, consummated marriage cannot be broken up by any power on earth. That's a valid marriage. If everything is done validly, there's no impediments, then a marriage where consent is legitimately exchanged and it is consummated is a valid marriage that, uh, that enjoys the force and the respect of the law. And any marriage is considered valid by the church until and unless the opposite is proven. And that's where we get into my final point, which is a declaration of nullity. You've heard the term annulment. What's an annulment? An annulment is not a Catholic divorce. Okay. Annulment is not divorce. What's a divorce? A divorce is saying a marriage existed and it ended. An annulment is not saying, well, there was a valid Catholic marriage, but now it doesn't exist anymore. A decree of nullity, popularly called an annulment, is basically the church, through a careful judgment and a court case, examining all of the facts and all the testimonies and all the information, saying, actually, a valid marriage never existed because something essential was missing from the beginning. So it's not like there was a valid marriage and then it ceased. It's that something ultimately from the beginning, and usually that goes to the consent, some defect of consent, right? Either there wasn't the capacity, the psychic maturity to assume the obligations of marriage or something in the will, you know, why'd they get married? Well, they'd only been dating three weeks and she got pregnant and they didn't want it. So they figured they'd get married because they were gonna have the baby, you know? That's not the right reason that there was this that the will was conditioned by a little fear there, or a little force, right? They, they felt pressured to get pressure. You know, that's not, that's not a, an absolute freedom. So what is an annulment? Annulment is a, is a very careful church judgment after a long period of, 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 it's basically a church court case in the church tribunal in the diocese examining, was there something fundamentally lacking that renders the marriage null because there was something essential lacking from the beginning that, 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 that makes it not valid? That's what annulment is. It's not Catholic divorce, right? Even if a Catholic couple is validly married with the sacrament of marriage and gets a civil divorce, that only has civil effects, right? That means they're not legally married to that person anymore. But sacramentally, in the eyes of God and of the church, those two people are still bound in that irrevocable bond for life until the church proves otherwise. So divorce does not end a sacramental marriage. Nothing ends a sacramental marriage. No force on earth can end a sacramental marriage. Again, at times the church will say a sacramental marriage actually never really existed from the beginning because something essential was missing. But marriage is for life. So marriage, that's a really, oh, I'm a minute over. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. But hopefully this gives you some ideas of why Catholics don't get married on the beach, 
uh, what makes for a valid or invalid marriage, and uh, uh, perhaps over beer or wine at pub time, you may have some crazy questions, and I'd be happy to answer them for you. But for now, just thought I'd give you a quick primer. This is actually the result of a suggestion by um, someone who attends P3 saying, you know what, there's all this, you know, there's all these you know, laws and rules and everything about marriage. What is, the, what is the skinny? What's the story? So that's the skinny skinny. That's the half hour stories. Again, happy to answer any other questions you may have in this or some other context. And let us always continue to pray for all married couples that we know, for those couples that are discerning marriage, and that our society really, which so sadly has abandoned the sacrament of marriage by making divorce so easy, by recognizing same-sex marriage, which of course is impossible, uh, let us pray that our society really be more and more converted to once again embrace and accept and support marriage, even in her laws. Amen.